Good morning. How's everybody doing? Good. Good. Y'all are kind of quiet today. We here? Or no? We here? Okay. Hey, um, I want to pray, ask the Lord to be with us, and then we'll, we'll dive in. God, we thank you for your word. Thank you for speaking to us, Lord. Thank you for the chance to gather together. Uh, God, and thank you that when we gather together, we can gather around what you have to say, not just what I have to say or what John or Bob has to say, Father. Uh, thank you that we get to hear from you, Father, and we pray that you would, as you always do, uh, you know, speak to us, God, um, accomplish what your word is sent out for. Uh, Lord, help us to love Jesus more and love each other better. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, today is the very last sermon in First Thessalonians. Um, and so far in the light, I was expecting an awe. That's all right. Um, and so far in the life of our church, uh, in these two years, we've had the privilege to uh, go through the book of Ephesians and the book of Mark and the book of Ecclesiastes and Jude and First Thessalonians. Am I missing Jonah? Um, if you haven't noticed, we like to preach through books of the Bible. Uh, and the reason we like to do that is because we want to let God's word speak for itself. We want people to get a picture of how the Bible fits together. And we think that, uh, yeah, the most helpful, faithful way is for us to just open the word and to preach it. So um, how many of you, uh, and you can be honest, had not really studied First Thessalonians before we started this series? Okay. Um, how many people feel like they understand the book a little bit better now than when we started? Okay. How many people are mad at me for not believing in the secret rapture of the church? Anybody? Okay. Um, well, yeah, it's been a privilege to, to go through it with you, and I'm excited to, uh, to look at this last section. Uh, and it's a great way for them to wrap it up, um, and, and hopefully we can tie in some of the themes that have been going on the whole time. Um, but I'll start just by telling you something about me so you'll understand and can kind of lead us into what we're talking about. Uh, when I was a kid, I really strongly, very, very strongly disliked school. School was not a blessing to me as a kid. Um, I did not enjoy it. I mean, I liked my friends. Uh, I liked PE and lunch. Those were good. Um, I liked learning a little bit at this point, but I didn't like school. But like the pious young man I was, I sucked it up every morning, you know, and I grit my teeth and I went to school and I tried to do it with a smile on my face. Uh, I didn't cause any trouble. I didn't get in no fights. I just did what I was supposed to do most of the time, not including homework, but everything else. I did what I was supposed to do. And one of the things that made it harder for me to endure the difficulty of school with a smile on my face was, um, you know, sometimes you'd go into the classroom Right, you think it's just a regular day, and the teacher comes in, and then she says these terrible words. We're going to work in groups today. <laughs> when, when I heard teachers say, we're going to work in groups today, what I actually heard was, today I'm going to make you hate school more than you already do. <laughs> By forcing you to work with other people who also don't want to be here right now. Uh, I didn't like working in groups. I preferred to just work by myself, partly because I'm an introvert, partly because I just felt like I worked better by myself, and I, that's just what I preferred. I just felt like I'm better at school when I just do it by myself. I'm barely making it as is, but we're going to get in this group. It's going to be one dude that talks too much. It's going to be three people who don't do nothing. Uh, I don't care enough to take the lead, so we're just all going to be staring at each other for a while. Um, I didn't like the working group. I just felt like it was more efficient. It was better when I just did it by myself, and that same kind of perspective that we think we're just better off just doing it by ourselves, it's easier that way, we don't have to deal with other people's mess and quirks, is also how we think about a lot of stuff having to do with following Jesus. We think, okay, I was by myself, I, I prayed to Jesus to save me by myself, and I deal with all my issues by myself. I think it's better for me to just do this on my own. I, I don't prefer to always be with people and let people know everything that's going on. And one of the things that, that Paul's wanting us to get a grasp of in this book is what it means for us to wait for the return of Jesus, what it is that we're supposed to be doing. And I just want to let you know uh, that the way that Paul talks about this is that it's a group project. 
right? So you're waiting on Jesus, and it's far better than group projects in school. You're waiting on Jesus is a group project. It's not something that you just do by yourself. That what we want to be found doing when Jesus comes back is not something that we just do on our own. It's something that we do together. Uh, and I want to encourage you to being faithful while we wait for Jesus is not a waste of our time. And again, I asked the question uh, last week, and I'll ask it again, what are we supposed to do if Jesus is coming back soon? If Jesus is coming back to do what he said he's going to do, what are we supposed to be found doing? Uh, and, and this is what I think this text is going to point us to, is that we wait on Jesus by living like Jesus. We wait on Jesus by living like Jesus, not by uh, standing in a particular spot and waiting for him to show up, not by just quitting our job, not by being unfaithful, not by not caring about anything that the Lord has given us in this life. No, we wait on Jesus by living like Jesus. So First Thessalonians 5 uh, um, we're going to start at verse 12, and, and here's the thing, um, this, is a, this is a longer section, and it's kind of like a grab bag of all the stuff that he wants us to think about, so, so we're not going to walk through it just line by line, we're just going to talk about little sections at a time, we'll jump around a lot, so keep your Bible open, and what we'll do is, with that in mind, that we wait on Jesus by living like Jesus, we're going to think about a few things that that looks like that Paul is going to point out. And the first one in this group project of waiting on Jesus, of being ready for Jesus, the first one is love. The first one is love, which is something that we hear all the time in churches and in sermons. And it's because and we've heard it in our sermons a lot. And it's because the Bible talks about it a lot because it's a big deal. Maybe because the God of the Bible who's speaking, it says God is love, right? Jesus says the greatest commandment is to love God and to love neighbor. Love has this really central place uh, in the Christian walk and what it means to know God and to follow God. He wants there to be love among the family of God. Uh, sometimes we can think it's kind of dumb or useless to be super concerned about God's people, to spend a lot of time talking about loving one another because there are too many real things going on in our world to be caring about that that much or to think about that that much, right? We got injustice issues going on. We have this healthcare stuff going on. We have poverty in our surrounding neighborhoods. We got all this stuff going on. Why are we talking about loving one another when we need to have an impact on the world around us? And here's what I'm going to say. If you think our love for one another is an entirely separate conversation from our impact on the world, then I don't think you've paid attention to what Jesus has to say. Because the way Jesus talks about our love for one another is it's one of the central parts of how we impact the world around us. It's not like we take a break from impacting the world to love one another. Loving one another is one of the ways that we do it. Remember, we're supposed to be this family of God that's from the future. Remember, we were talking about people that's from the future and show up in metal outfits and they talk different and they know stuff that other people don't know about what's going to happen. That's us. We're citizens of heaven. And so when we are a part of this family that loves one another, right, I love you as I would love myself, then I get to show people a little picture of what's coming. That day when heaven's going to come down to earth and Jesus remakes everything and we live with him, that's what the future's going to be like. Love, And so we get an opportunity to do that as citizens of heaven. So I want to read uh, verse 11. Verse 11. Uh, this is what Paul says after talking about the return of Jesus, uh, living together with him forever. He says this, therefore, encourage one another and build each other up as you are already doing. We'll stop there. Um, Right, he starts by saying, uh, therefore, right, or just in light of what I just said, in light of the fact that Jesus is coming back and we should be expecting him, in light of that, encourage one another, build each other up, right? So far from Paul seeing that as something that's useless, Paul sees are encouraging each other and building each other up as a priority, right? When we say all this stuff is happening, it's too much at stake for us to be spending time trying to love each other. Paul has just got done talking about the end of the world and the final judgment. And he says, therefore, in light of what I just said, the stakes couldn't be any higher than that. Literally, encourage one another. Build one another up. That's what he encourages us to do. Paul mentions encouragement a lot in this book. You see it several times. And, and I think what he's talking about here is a kind of... Uh, 
comfort and strengthening in the faith. That's almost word for word what he said about why he sent Timothy. He said, to strengthen and encourage you concerning your faith. So that encouragement of one another is like a kind of steroids in the spiritual muscles of the Christian, right? There's something outside of us that gives us some strength that we don't have on our own. That's the encouragement we're to give one another. It addresses our weakness with this kind of strength and might that comes from God's word, and it comes from God's people, which is a blessing, right? This is part of why this group project isn't like group projects in school, because that was not a blessing. It didn't bless me. It didn't make things go better, and you can tell I am bitter at my teachers, but this is different than that. This isn't some group project that holds us back. This is, hey, you're to encourage one another. You're to build one another up, and it's messy sometimes, but, but we're here to, to help each other out, right? That encouragement, that strengthening, and, and I think specifically he's thinking about encouraging each other with the truth he just talked about, that Jesus is coming back, and how that impacts our life. Um, if the way that we think about what's going to happen in the future has no effect on our life right now, then we're not thinking about it correctly. Uh, how we think about what happens at the end should affect what's happening here. And the fact that Jesus is coming back and he's making all things new and we're going to be with him forever, that should give us encouragement and strengthening and give us grace to be able to endure because we know what's coming next. And he talks about building up, building each other up. Um, you know... Phrases like that, like build one another up, that kind of sounds like something like my first grade teacher would say, don't tear one another down, build each other up. And even as a first grade, I was like, okay, whatever. It sounded real cheesy and corny to me. Um, But what Paul's talking about here is not like something cheesy and corny just saying nice things. When he's talking about building up, he means speaking things that will benefit the person, that will help them to grow into the person that God would have them to be, that kind of building one another up. Building one another up means like this actively uh, working towards the maturity of your brothers and sisters in Jesus. Colossians 3 talks about uh, letting the word of Christ dwell in us richly. And then in light of that, singing songs to one another like we did, like some of us did. Uh, praying, uh, uh, admonishing and teaching one another. All the stuff that we do with one another, with the word of Christ dwelling in us richly that helps us to build each other up. Or in Ephesians 4, he's talking about building each other up. And, and he talks about our speech in 429, and he says, only speak words that give grace to the hearer, right? That, that give grace to somebody, that helps somebody, that builds somebody up, um, which is a huge means of grace in their life. Encouragement and building up are primarily things that we do with our words, and we do not think carefully enough about our words. When we think about what we're going to say, even to one another, we're often thinking about stuff completely different than encouraging to build one another. We're thinking about looking, looking good, maybe sounding deep, being funny, just having a random conversation. Uh, and, and it's rare. Sometimes it's even awkward to us, and that should bother us. If it's awkward for somebody to turn a conversation to Jesus and what Jesus would have to say about a situation, that doesn't say a good thing about the culture of our family. It should be regular for somebody to say, that reminds me of something I read in Scripture. Or, have you ever thought about what Jesus has to say about that? Or, I know they said that, but what does God say? That should be a regular occurrence. It should be something we're doing all the time. So I want to encourage you to endure that awkwardness sometimes. Because we have to build that culture in our church. And don't make it awkward when somebody does. Even if they make an awkward segue. We can grow in our segues. That's fine. But we want this to be regular. These are things we do for one another, mainly with our words, so that it's like the Lord has a building project, and that is his people, his church, uh, and Jesus has already done the hard work. He made the plans. He made the necessary purchases. He laid the foundation. He supplied all the materials, and he's called us to simply follow directions to build it. Jesus is the great contract, and we're just some construction workers that he's called to do specific parts of the task. And one of the main parts of that task is that the word of God would echo around in our congregation. We'd be building each other up, right? That we'd be encouraging one another. And the completion we're trying to build towards is maturity, looking more like him. Because while we wait on Jesus, the way that we wait on Jesus is living like Jesus. And we need each other's help to do that, right? I need people to encourage me and build me up if I'm going to live more like Jesus. 
Let's jump down to verse 13. Let's read the end of verse 13. This says more about the love he's called us to. And we'll get to the point above that in a second. But he says, be at peace among yourselves. He tells them be at peace among themselves. And it's, it's not very surprising that he would tell them to be at peace because we've been adopted by the God of peace, as he calls them in verse 23, right? We're followers of the Prince of Peace, which is who Jesus is called. We've been given grace and peace in Jesus. So it's not surprising that he would call us to be at peace. We are a community of peace. We're built around the peace we've been given in Jesus. So we shouldn't be a family full of conflict and fights. Um, But it can happen. We've seen it. I mean, we've all seen churches that look more like Real Housewives than Acts 2. It's full of more gossip, slander, and fights and rivalry than selling all our stuff and helping each other and gathering around the word together. We've all seen that. Um, And that's part of why a lot of people don't mess with church, because they see a family that's more dysfunctional than their own, right? They don't see some community from the future full of citizens of heaven who are imperfect but striving to look more like Jesus. They see foolishness. So this peace he's calling us to is a, is a harmony, it's, it's a unity, it's a sense of calm when we can enjoy each other instead of fight each other. And it sounds nice, but it's hard to do, right? It's hard to be at peace with each other. Stuff gets in the way of it. Uh, conflict is always going to disturb peace all the time. It's like if you got a bowl of some soup on the table and it's just sitting there calm and someone bumps the table and it starts splashing out, which is fine because soup is gross. But conflict... <laughs> disturbs peace. Where there's peaceful water, conflict rocks the boat. It, it makes it rocky, right? And, and this is not just sin that does that, not just sinful conflict. There are other things that can get in the way of our peace that can lead to sin, but other things can get in the way. Sometimes misunderstandings can get in the way of our peace with one another. Sometimes somebody just says something and you take it a certain way or you say something, they take it a certain way and you're like, oh, I didn't mean it like that, but they don't believe you. Uh, And then you've put this person in that box of that misunderstanding just for the rest of the time you know them. And there can't be peace or harmony in that relationship because of that misunderstanding. Or it could even just be a disagreement. It could be a disagreement about some doctrine of the Bible. It could be disagreement about politics or disagreement about anything. And where there used to be affection, now there's suspicion. You're now suspicious of this person. You now put them in this box that they hate people. They don't agree with me on this. That's because they don't love Jesus. They're, they're faking. And, and we just leave people in these boxes and it gets in the way of our peace uh, with one another. And there's so many other things that can disturb our peace. But here's what we want to do as uh, brothers and sisters in Jesus. We want to work through that conflict. We want to work towards peace and harmony. When there's conflict, the easiest thing to do, and a thing we will always be tempted to do, um, is either uh, attack and come at somebody's neck or just kind of pretend like it ain't nothing. Sometimes we can think that ignoring some kind of conflict is the peace that Jesus is calling for. Like, I, I didn't, you know, attack them or slander them, so I am doing what Jesus called me to do, and I'm living at peace. When often the thing that you're doing is being an enemy of peace by not dealing with the thing that's in the way of peace. Ignoring issues is not being at peace. Ignoring issues is one of the main boundaries to peace. Just think about if you're married, your marriage, or your relationship with somebody close to you, and they they do something to you, and you don't deal with it, and like seven years later, you wonder why you want to accidentally elbow them in the face when you see them, and it's like, there's conflict that wasn't dealt with. You're still mad about this. Y'all haven't dealt with it. Peace, especially in a family like this, of people from all different places with all different backgrounds and personalities, is not something that happens on accident. It's something that happens very purposefully, um, and it takes humility. It takes peacemaking. Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers. Jesus is uh, the greatest peacemaker. Uh, The greatest conflict there ever was is when the people who God created sinned against him, spat in his face, rebelled against him, and Jesus didn't sit back like he didn't see it. He did way more than he had to do, and that he came to earth and he confronted that conflict head on to make peace between God and man. And here's the thing, when Jesus confronted that conflict, he didn't do it. Uh, He didn't do it by holding a grudge. He didn't do it by being hateful. Jesus did it by actually laying his life down and sacrificing. Peace takes work. 
Peace also takes sacrifice and taking some L's. We do not like to take a singular L. We, we want to make sure that at the end of every disagreement, just so you know I'm right. I mean, we can be cool, but I just need you to know it was you. And I'm sorry. I'm sorry. But you should, but if you wouldn't, you know, so, you know, it's hard. You know, I'm trying to follow Jesus. And it's hard when you do stuff like that to me. So we good? And it's like, no, stop. We, we have to make sacrifices. Peace doesn't come easy, and, and it takes a willingness not to try to win an argument. What are we working towards? When there's conflict with somebody, one of the, the best things we can do is to ask ourselves, okay, let me think about what I want to say, and what am I trying to accomplish by saying these things? If I'm bringing something up purely for the purpose of making somebody feel bad, just so they know that was jacked up and I need you to know that you're terrible, that's not a... What are we doing? Instead, we should have more intentional, we should be trying to work through the conflict, right? If it's something that's not even a big deal, that'll never happen again, those are the kind of things we can just let go. But if it's something that's serious or something that's going to continue, those are the things that we want to talk about. Otherwise, there can't be any peace. We have to work towards that. We have to be gracious with each other. We have to be merciful with each other. We got to believe the best sometimes. Somebody says something, sometimes somebody says something that, is offensive or unhelpful, and we believe the worst about them, right? We caricature them and think the only reason they would say that is because they want me to die. And it's like, no, they just stumbled over their words, or they just don't understand this or that, or y'all just are not on the same page. It takes, like, believing the best, being merciful, being gracious. There is no chance Uh, for for peaceful relationships apart from forgiveness and grace and mercy and compassion and believing the best. Uh, A book uh, me and my wife read early on in our marriage where we were trying to figure out how to work through conflict. Um, I'll never forget this phrase. He he said, and if I don't say it right now, I'm I'm lying. Maybe I did forget it. He said that um, sin makes a marriage bitter. Mercy can make it sweet. So in all of our relationships, sin and conflict can make everything very bitter, but mercy can sweeten it. Grace, compassion, forgiveness can put the sweetener back in it to give us the peace that we're going towards. Um, Romans 12, 18 says, if possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live live at peace with everyone. So you're not going to be best friends with everybody, but he does say here, as far as it depends on you, if possible, right? So this doesn't sound like apathy, like, nah, I just don't like her, we good, or mm, I don't like him, he's, he's, no, he's saying, this sounds like effort, right? This sounds like someone who cares, this sounds like someone who's eager for the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace to work towards it, and we can't control anybody else. So all we can do is what depends on us but he's called us to do all that we can do and to trust God with the rest. Let's look at verse 14. He says, and we exhort you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle, comfort the discouraged, help the weak, be patient with everyone. So as part of this little part where we're talking about love, this is one of the ways we're called to love. He talks about three ways to address three different kinds of people in the church, and then one way we're supposed to address everybody. Uh, first, the idol. He says people who are idle, we should warn them. And I think when he talks about idleness, uh, he's talking about people in the church who don't want to follow the rules of how the world is made and don't understand that if you don't work, you don't eat. He's talking about people who don't do anything. Uh, that, that if you don't work so you can eat, you're going to be a burden to everybody else. The people in the church who are not working, not eating, and so are forcing others to, to have to provide for them. And, and here's why I think he's talking about that. Because in 2 Thessalonians, I'll just read it to you. 2 Thessalonians 3, he says this. He says, when we were with you, this is what we commanded you. If anyone isn't willing to work, he should not eat. For we hear that there are some among you who are idle. They are not busy, but busy bodies. That was... That was kind of a fire line, Paul. They're not busy, but busy bodies. I'm going to put that in the song. Verse 12. Now we command and exhort such people by the Lord Jesus Christ to work quietly and provide for themselves. But as for you, brothers and sisters, do not grow weary in doing good. And then he says, if anyone doesn't obey our instruction in this letter, take note of that person. Don't associate with him so that he may be ashamed. You don't consider him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. I think 
he's talking about the same idleness in, in First Thessalonians that he's talking about right here, this, this uh, unwillingness to, to be busy with work. And here's part of it. Um, here's part of our problem with how we think about how things will end. We think, oh, Jesus is coming back. He's, he's burning this earth down. He's making a new one. We're going to live with Jesus forever on this new earth. Um, so all I need to think about is things that seem super eternal to me, like just evangelism or just church. And so I'm not going to bother myself with my job. And I just want you to know uh, that's a bad way to live. It won't last very long. You don't work, you don't eat. That's just not a biblical principle. That's how God made the world, right? Uh, but also, our work is not completely separated from our spiritual lives. Work is actually what our spiritual life is going to look like most of the time. If you just count the hours in a day, most of us spend more time working than we do anything else, except maybe sleeping. Right? All the time. This can mean schoolwork. It can mean raising kids. It can mean your nine to five. We spend most of the time doing our main work. So when it comes to one of the main things we do with our time, Jesus is not telling us to just kind of shirk that responsibility or to make the weird assumption that Jesus doesn't care about your job. He does. And the reason we're idle sometimes is because we have a, a low view, a low value of work. We don't think work matters that much. We think our work is just a product of the fall. It's not. As soon as he makes Adam, he says, I'm going to put you in the garden so you can work it. Now, work gets hard after the fall, after sin enters the world. But work is what you were made to do. I mean, that's what, he doesn't say, Adam, I've created you. Sit right there. No. He said, I put you in the garden. I want you to work it. Hey, be fruitful and multiply. multiply. Cultivate this garden. Watch over it uh, and work it. Uh, you've been made to work, right? And that is a spiritual act. God has made you to do that, and Jesus is pleased when we work to his glory. Last thing I'll say about that, a lot of us um, want like big grand ideas about how to engage the culture and how to be world changers. We want to do amazing things. And a lot of the times the Bible gives us uh, instead like real regular ordinary ways, like go to work and provide for yourself. Work quietly. Um, and for, for, for uh, most of the time, the way we're going to show off Jesus and what he's like is this, being faithful in public, right? Being faithful to Jesus everywhere we are. So at your job, being faithful, uh, honoring Jesus, working hard, loving your, loving your coworkers, right? Telling your coworkers about Jesus. Uh, God has called us to work in a way that honors him. So we want to warn the idol. Uh, and then he tells us to, to comfort the discouraged, which is pretty straightforward, the discouraged. And this isn't just uh, one fixed group of people who are always discouraged. If discouragement for a room it would ha- uh, was a room, it would have a revolving door because all of us are in and out all the time. All Christians throughout their life are well acquainted with discouragement. It's not a stranger to us. We know what discouragement is. And he's even thinking, I think, about some of these People who are discouraged maybe because of loved ones who died. We're wondering what happened to them. He's already told them what's going to happen when Jesus comes back and raises them from the grave. He's saying comfort the discouraged. We talked about that encouragement a moment ago. He says help the weak. And I, I don't think he has any specific weakness in mind, but, you know, anyone who needs help, it could be physical weakness, uh, spiritual weakness, emotional weakness, financial weakness. He's saying we're here to help one another, not just to observe weakness and say, oh, it is what it is, but to actually do something to help each other. And so if you notice all of these, these are, these are all action verbs. This is all stuff we're supposed to do. We normally think of love as something that resides in a fuzzy place internally, that it's just a feeling. But love does not sound here like it's just a feeling. It sounds like it's a very active seeking of one another's good. And then... Just in case you were uh, thinking, man, uh, I don't know any people who are weak or idle or discouraged, so I ain't got to do nothing. Or I don't know what to do with other people. He gives a catch-all. Be patient with everyone, right? Meaning enduring uh, tough things uh, about people and enduring them in love. Uh, So you might be, you know, uh, thinking you can be impatient and unloving to someone because they're not on this list. He gives his catch-all. And everything he mentioned above requires patience. Any long-term loving relationship requires patience. It will get tiring. It will get hard. It will get difficult. It doesn't take 
Um, patience, you know, just to shake somebody's hand at church most of the time. It doesn't take patience for that unless they're a long talker and then you might get stuck. But it doesn't usually take patience. It doesn't take patience for one-off quick acts of love. But the kind of family dynamics he's calling us to, to like walk together and to live together and to comfort each other and to warn each other, that requires patience. If, uh, if you decide to try to benefit somebody else over a long period of time, they will get on your nerves and you'll need patience. And you're going to get on their nerves, and you need patience. We love to deny people the very stuff we also need. People stay being patient with us, and we cannot muster up an ounce of patience for anybody else. And that is just self-righteous, just kind of blindness. All of us need to have patience with one another. He's saying be patient with everyone. He says, see to it that no one repays evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good for one another and for all. Right? We don't repay evil for evil. We don't get mad at people and try to get them back. One of the reasons we shouldn't do this is because when we take revenge, uh, we're putting ourselves in the place of God. Here's why I say that. Revenge is for people uh, who are proud enough to think justice is in their hands. I'm the one who executes final justice. I'm, I'm God. And revenge is for people who don't trust that God will make all things right. So I got to make sure that I make all things right. He said, no, no, we don't repay Evil for evil. God will settle scores. Uh, trust that to the Lord. He's saying instead of doing that, we pursue each other's good. We don't try to do evil. We pursue good, right? This is active. Again, we're chasing after good in each other's life. Love is an active pursuit, not a passive feeling. And he says for one another and for all. So we don't just love other believers. We don't just love people in this church. If we only love other Christians, we're not really obeying the great commandment to love your neighbor as yourself which includes more than just believers. Uh, neighbor is anybody you have any amount of proximity to. Anybody you encounter in any ways, we're called to love as ourself. And in verse 26, he says, greet the brothers and sisters with a holy kiss. Right? In the ancient world, um, a kiss like this could symbolize a lot of stuff. It could symbolize a friendship. Um, and, you know, kissing on the mouth, which is the main way we normally think of kissing, was not the main way kissing happened. The most common form is like a kiss on the forehead or the cheek. And greetings. So, you know, some of us will get a little too caught up on exactly how this verse will be applied. I just want to say, you don't have to focus on the holy kiss part. The, the part that matters is an affectionate greeting, right? Uh, greeting one another as family. He says brothers and sisters over and over and over and over again. So for us, that may mean a hug. That may mean dapping a hug. That may mean a side hug. Whatever it means, he's saying uh, greet one another with joy. I love seeing people who see each other and are just excited to see one another. We can't wait to be together again. We're actually family, so we should actually have joy in our interactions with each other. Uh, while we wait on Jesus, we should live like Jesus. The first part of that is love, and that's the biggest part. I saw John looking back at the timer. Uh, now, uh, he's going to zoom in on some particular parts of the, of the community, what this love looks like. Number two is leaders. Number one was love. Number two is leaders. Uh, Bob made reference to this part of the text earlier. And in our world today, you know, there are plenty of, we have problems with authority, but there are plenty of, of kinds of leaders who still get respect. But one that often doesn't get enough respect is the pastor or spiritual authority. And part of that is because, you know, high profile leaders have, have not behaved in ways that seem to deserve respect, or people that they've interacted with. And so people think, you know, they don't deserve respect and honor, but Paul's going to call this church to interact with their leaders in a particular way, and he'll tell them why. Verse 12, he says, Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to give recognition to those who labor among you and lead you in the Lord and admonish you, and to regard them very highly in love because of their work. Right? Those who labor among you and lead you in the Lord and admonish you seems pretty obviously to me spiritual leaders. We don't know exactly what the uh, government of this church was yet, but at least some, some uh, leaders had kind of risen to the forefront and were leading, and, and we assume eventually were elders, pastors in that church. Um, and this may be self-serving or sound self-serving because I'm your pastor. Uh, point two, uh, love me um, or honor me, give me respect. Um, that's a little strange, but if you'll let me just talk about this text real briefly, I'll tell you what I think it means and what it doesn't mean. What he asked them to do is pretty simple, give recognition and regard them very highly. 
basically means respect them and honor them. Give them respect and honor that's due, the office of them leading the church. And that doesn't make sense if we're talking about some dudes who don't really actually care about the members of the church. That doesn't deserve any honor. And if it's just a way for someone to collect a check, that doesn't deserve any respect. Or if it's a hypocrite who just loves to stand in front of people and get praise, that doesn't deserve respect. But if these leaders do labor among you and lead you in the Lord, then of course it deserves some respect. Um, the work of a pastor is often misunderstood and it's taken for granted. People sometimes think that pastors only do the stuff that they see them do. Like, man, I'm working five days a week. This dude working one day a week. Just on Sunday. That's his whole job. And Wednesdays sometimes. Uh, but there's a lot more that goes on for, for the life of a pastor. And I'll, uh, for the sake of uh, avoiding awkwardness, I'll talk about John and I'll talk about Mo and I'll talk about Rich. Uh, these brothers serve and labor for your spiritual good in a hundred more ways than you could even imagine. So yeah, you see John preaching, and you see Richard Moe preaching, or you see people organizing stuff, but there's so much that goes into to loving and serving you guys. And we don't say this to say, uh, poor us, we love it. It's what we want to do. This is what we chose to do, and we love y'all deeply, which is why we labor. But he's saying, because of the work that they do for you, respect them, highly regard them. And so one of the ways that that I hear this speaking to me is when I think about the ways that John or Richard Moe care for my soul and pray for me, I want to give them the respect and honor that's due as my spiritual leaders that I submit to, that I serve alongside. And I want to encourage you to do the same thing. We're not asking for special treatment. Uh, we're just asking for what he's talking about here, just recognition and honor. This is not don't touch the man of God. This is not that don't talk bad about the man of God or that you know, we're so highly that we can't even hold our Bibles or pour a glass of water. We always got to have a spot right in the front. Or um, this, this uh, pastor, I know he, you know, got, uh, he went to a new church, and this church was, I mean, they had crazy debt. Um, and they didn't know how they were going to pay it off. And his first week, they buy him a Mercedes because the pastor needs a Mercedes. That's not what we're talking about, Right. All of those things I mentioned are not wrong. The Mercedes, probably wrong. All the other stuff, parking spot, not that big a deal. We're just saying it doesn't have to be that stuff. That, that's not necessarily what he's talking about. He's talking about respect and recognition and honor, right? A level of honor for, for those who lead you and, and love Jesus and who labor for your spiritual good. Uh, one uh, author said, for, uh, since the doctrine of the gospel is lovely, it makes sense that the ministers of the gospel should be loved those who bring the most beautiful message for the benefit of your souls. You know, I can think of pastors who have served me in ways that, that you know, I can't even remember and count up the number of times I sought counsel with pastors of mine. You know, when I was thinking about uh, Jessica, I'm like, I might want to marry this girl. You know, I start talking to my pastors, and they give me good counsel on what to think about. I'm 19 years old. I'm like, what am I? I, I think I might be ready to be married. Help me think about this. So they helped me to think about it. Help me to think through things well, right? Or I can think about when my dad was dying in the hospital and the pastor of my mom's church is in the room with us, right? Up praying with us and comforting us. And this is not a pastor of a small church, you know, it's, you know, 6,000 members. And he decides on a whim, he's going to show up and he's going to be with us and grieve with us for our spiritual good. And I could mention thing after thing after thing of how pastors have cared for me or cared for my family. And so it makes perfect sense for me then to read this and think, yeah, I should respect them. I, I should hold them in, in high regard in the way the Bible calls me to do that. What that doesn't mean is it doesn't mean the pastors are perfect. Uh, doesn't mean we don't make mistakes. I can think of some mistakes I made this week. I think of some mistakes I made in the sermon. John is thinking I made the mistake of it being too long. I promise we're going to wrap it up in time. We make plenty of mistakes. This is not saying pastors are perfect or they walk on water. This is just saying the respect that's due them. We don't want to turn pastors into many gods or messiahs. We just want to regard them as spiritual leaders. We wait on Jesus by living like Jesus. Part of that is leaders. Number three, listen. Listen. At the center of our waiting on Jesus is listening to God's voice, listening to God's will, not just our will, 
not just the will of our friends, not the will of people in the world who try to draw us from Jesus or false prophets, but God's will. And, and listen to part of what he says is God's will for us. Verse 16, he says, rejoice always, pray constantly, give thanks in everything, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. So we want to listen to God's will for us. And this rejoicing always, praying constantly, giving thanks, those things are connected. Uh, one of the ways they're connected is all of them are the opposite of grumbling and complaining. The opposite of having a hard week and grumbling and complaining is instead rejoicing, right? Or instead thanking God or instead praying and talking to the one who can do something about it. We would much more often like to just complain and vent to somebody about how this isn't fair and what's happening. Instead, he's saying rejoice always, pray constantly, give thanks and everything. Rejoice always doesn't mean pretend like you're happy all the time. Rejoice is a stronger word than that. Rejoice means putting your joy on Jesus, hoping in Jesus. He's your boast, striving to hope in him. He says pray constantly or pray without ceasing. Uh, This makes prayer sound like less of a checkmark on your to-do list and more of a lifestyle. Pray constantly. We're supposed to be praying all the time. Uh, and and uh, when we pray, um, you know, we should only pray constantly if we need help constantly, which we do. If, if there's some areas of your life you're like, Lord, I got this. I'm sovereign uh, uh, on Mondays from 5 to 7. I don't need to pray. If that's the case, then fine. You don't need to pray then. But if you always need help from the sovereign God of the universe who's in control of all things, then you should always be praying. And we don't. Um, here's one of the things that, that's helped me to be uh, to make better steps towards being faithful to this is sometimes you can pray really briefly. You've got to go into a hard conversation. Father, I pray you give me humility and help me to speak words that will build him up. In Jesus' name, amen. Right? Every time we pray doesn't have to be a 45-minute prayer. Right? Sometimes we can pray more briefly, you know. Uh, so don't uh, disobey the other command and not be an idol at work. Like, but trip, I was praying, I was praying for about five hours. I had three more uh, to work. It's like, no, you can pray briefly, and it'll help us to to be able to do what Jesus is calling us to do—to pray constantly. And He talks about giving thanks in everything. These are these words: rejoice always, pray constantly, give thanks in everything. Right? This talks about how the mercy of Jesus kind of swallows up everything in our life. Uh, that even the worst things are seen through a different lens when you're in Jesus, when you have hope in Jesus. He says, give thanks in everything. And we get to thank God for the ways he's answered our prayers. And thank God for the stuff that we didn't even ask for, that we didn't even know we needed that he gave us. You know how many times, most of the things that God does for you and gives you is stuff you didn't ask for, especially because we don't pray constantly like we're supposed to. Um. I mean, if you have a spouse, uh, you know, one of the things, even better than giving someone a great gift on a holiday is just like out of nowhere. My wife loves surprises. It don't even have to be a good surprise, any surprise. Like, hey, girl, I got you uh, Snickers and some Swedish fish from the store just because. And she melts (laughs) because it's something that I've given. I shouldn't have gave away my secret, but it's something that I've given her. Just because I didn't have some special reason. And I want you to know, most of the things that God gives you are just because. Just because he's gracious. Just because he loves you. And I want you to know there is nothing that God gives you that he's obligated to give you. There is no holiday like, oh, anniversary, I can't not. God only gives us things freely out of love and kindness and compassion. We have way more than we could talk about to be thankful for. We're to give thanks in everything. And then as he's talking about listening to God's will, he says, don't stifle the spirit. Don't despise prophecies, but test all things. Hold on to what is good. Stay away from every kind of evil. When he says don't stifle the spirit, you may have heard it, don't quench the spirit. Um, What he's saying is um, the, the Holy Spirit is at work in our church at work in our lives, he's saying, don't suppress his work. What the Holy Spirit does in the life of the church is far more important than anything anybody else does in the life of the church. The Holy Spirit is a person, the third person of the Trinity, and the work he does is indispensable. He's saying, don't suppress his work. 
Don't do stuff that hinders his work. Uh, don't ignore his, uh, his words to us. Don't, don't ignore his, uh, as he pushes us to be obedient to Jesus. Um, so it could be more general like that and everything the Spirit does. But I think it's connected to what he says next. Don't despise prophecies, but test all things. Really briefly, a prophecy is a revelation from God that's delivered through others. You can think about Scripture's prophecy. There's lots of prophecies in Scripture. Sometimes it's talking about the future. Sometimes it's just a word from God. And so uh, in this church, uh, the Thessalonian church, he talked about the word coming with power and with the Holy Spirit. Uh, what the Lord did uh, after Jesus rose, the Holy Spirit comes. They're these miraculous gifts that the Lord uses to show that his word is true. So it's like you see somebody you've seen lame your whole life and the word's preached and you also see that person get up and start walking. You might think, mm, this might be true. Seems like there's something to this. So he's saying when the Lord speaks, he's saying don't despise prophecies or don't ignore the way that would speak into the life of the church. He's saying, but test all things, right? Make sure it's a word from God. So what this says to us, um, I do think because we are in a different stage uh, of the life of the church, we're not going to see the level of miraculous stuff that the early church was seeing. I don't think that the Bible teaches that all of these miraculous gifts have ceased. And so what that prophecy looks like in the life of a church is something that we will talk about in another sermon because that's a lot. <laughs> but if you want to, if you have questions about prophecy, uh, we can talk about it. Uh, but it is kind of a, a complex thing and some Christians disagree on it. But I think the primary thing we want to hear from this is when the Lord speaks, don't ignore what the Lord has to say. And if someone says that they got something from the Lord, but it doesn't match with what the Lord already said, since the Lord doesn't contradict himself or lie, you need to test that. That's why he says, hold on to what is good. Stay away from what is evil. There are too many Christians who are trapped under false teaching because they hold on to what's evil and they push away what's good. He's saying everything you hear that's said to be from God, test it. What's good, what matches with what he's already said, embrace that. What's evil, push it away. So we wait on Jesus by living like Jesus. Last thing, we'll close with this. We, we're to love as leaders. We're to listen. And we'll close with this. We're to lean. Verse 23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept sound and blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will do it. He says, brothers and sisters, pray for us also. Greet all the brothers and sisters with the holy kiss. I charge you by the Lord that this letter be read to all the brothers and sisters. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Paul is closing this book out with some prayers and some promises. Right? And he talks about this God of peace. We've talked about this God of peace. Um, and he's saying, may your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept sound and blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus. Like he's talked about, he's saying, may you, when you stand before the judge himself, be sound and blameless and pure. Which is unbelievable to think about when we're not talking about an earthly judge who has to send detectives out to grab evidence. Uh, the judge of the living and the dead, the creator God does not have to gather evidence because he knows everything you've ever did, everything you've ever thought. There's nothing you've ever thought or done that's escaped him. And Jesus is coming to judge based on all that evidence that God has, and he's saying we can be kept sound and blameless before him. How could we be blameless when there's plenty to blame us for? Right? How could we be clean when there's plenty of ways we've been dirty? This is, this, is, this is my question for you if you're here today and you don't know Jesus or you're just thinking about the Jesus thing or you're not really sure. When you stand before the judge who has all of your dirt, hasn't missed anything, and he cares about you so much that he's paid very close attention to every millisecond of your life and his standard is perfection, how is it that you would be sound and pure and blameless before this guy? The only way that can happen is if you're given somebody else's record. If you're given somebody else's resume. If you're given some, the credit for the life somebody else lived. And that can only happen in Jesus. Again, one of the beauties is the one who comes to judge is also the one who laid his life down so that none of us have to be found guilty. 
So if you, if you don't know if you know Jesus, I want you to be pure and blameless before him. That happens by faith. That happens by trusting in Jesus. That happens by letting go of your sin and trusting in Jesus. And if you have questions for what that means to put your faith in Jesus, we would love to talk to you about that. Don't be embarrassed. Just come grab us after. You can email us, pastors at cornerstoneatl.org, whatever it takes for us to be able to talk to you about what it would mean to do that. One of the things that encourages me most here is that he doesn't base uh, what he's praying for, that we'll be sound and blameless at the coming of Jesus. He doesn't base it on our faithfulness, but on the faithfulness of God. He who calls you is faithful, he will do it. Um, that is the best assurance that we could possibly have, Amen. right? Uh, my faithfulness isn't good enough. My record isn't good enough. The faithfulness of Jesus is. He is faithful. He will do it. That is assurance. Not assurance of your strength, but assurance of the strength of Jesus. Not assurance of your faithfulness, but the faithfulness of Jesus. Not assurance of your holiness, but the holiness of Jesus. Not assurance of your righteous life, but the righteous life of Jesus. That is the best. You can't say that at the end of my list. Um, um, that, that is the blessed assurance that we get to sing about. That's the blessed assurance we get to hope in. That's what we get to rejoice in. And that's why Paul leaves us with these words. I charge you by the Lord that this letter be read to all the brothers and sisters. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Uh, if any of us are to be blameless before him, it's by grace. If we're to live like Jesus while we wait on Jesus, it's by grace. And, and the good thing about it being based on the faithfulness of Jesus is that Jesus is the greatest example of every single one of these commands. Uh, have you ever thought about the fact that every command in the Bible is one that Jesus has obeyed to perfection? There's no command in Scripture that Jesus disobeyed. Right? There's no law of God that Jesus has broken. Uh, Jesus is the Holy One, the Good One, the Son of God. Uh, and one of the things that First Thessalonians holds out to us for hope is that we get to be with him forever. He's coming back to get us. We get to be with him forever. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you again for your son, Jesus. God, thank you for Jesus. We have nothing without Jesus. We're in desperate need of Jesus. And we're so grateful for your word that we get to hear from Jesus. Father, we pray that you'd help us to eagerly await the return of your son. Help us to trust in him more. Help us to love him more. And help us to love one another more. God, if there are people who don't know Jesus, God, help us. Give us opportunities, open doors for us to tell them about him, Lord. Father, if anybody is feeling uh, shamed, shy, embarrassed to ask more about Jesus, we pray that you'd remove those obstacles because there's no one greater for them than me. There's nothing better for them to think about. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.